0: Welcome to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. This September, alumna and nonprofit leader Sharon Bush was voted in as a member of the Roosevelt University Board of Trustees. Sharon has over 20 years of nonprofit and business experience, and currently serves as president of the Grand Victoria Foundation. She is responsible for overseeing a $150 million endowment and a talented team of equity-minded, compassionate social justice leaders. I could go on and on about her background and experience, but we'll let her podcast do the talking. In this week's episode, guest host and Professor Andy Trees talks to Sharon about her experience as a non-traditional student at Roosevelt and what drew her to the university then and now. We also dive into her childhood growing up on the west side of Chicago, and being bused to a school, On the northwest side, this conversation is riveting, and we are so fortunate to have her on the Board of Trustees, so enjoy the conversation.
1: Sharon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You are a new board member at Roosevelt and also a Roosevelt alumna. You got your master's in public administration. Before we get to your now very serious job as board member, what was it like as a student at Roosevelt?
2: Oh, I first of all, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be on the podcast with you today and to talk about something that really is super near and dear to my heart. So, I was a grad student at Roosevelt many years ago, and actually um, they've helped me figure out what year I graduated and got my master's degree. That's how (laughs) how many years ago it was. Um, But I do tell the story that my time at Roosevelt as a graduate student was probably like one of my best educational experiences. So I went to school. There was very much a non-traditional student. And so what I mean by that is I was working. I was a working mom. My children, actually, I had three daughters. Two of them were in the world. And I had my third while I was a student at Roosevelt, virtually. (laughs) And so um, there was a point in time where I was actually taking classes, you know, less than, you know, half time or half time. So I wasn't always a full, you know, I was never a full-time graduate student. And at some point I had to do it less than half time so that I can juggle all of these things. So that actually was not a bad thing to do. It was very acceptable because many of the other students who were part of the program at the time, they Felt and looked like me, like in like literal and figurative ways. So, um, a very diverse student body in terms of like race and ethnicity, but also there were people who were working. They have full time jobs. I mean, so we all had these things that we were balancing. That I think made for like a really interesting set of perspectives when I was sitting in class. Whether it was like we were talking about the things that were happening in class or just what people were experiencing outside of class. So it always felt pretty seamless. I never had trouble kind of like managing in that way. And I never felt kind of stigmatized or any of these ways of kind of not being a full-time graduate student. So I loved my time at Roosevelt.
1: That's fantastic. I have to say, having kids, working, and getting a master's at the same time, that is an impressive juggling act. What was your secret? I have students they're working i know it's really hard for them to do that let alone raise a family at the same time what do you, what what was your secret to, to keeping organized and getting through all of that
2: that's a very excellent question i mean i was married so i mean that helped so okay. you know there are sometimes that there that's not the case with students so like my mom I can remember her trying to go back to school and, you know, she was doing that more on her own. And so she didn't finish right to, you know, what she sought sought out to accomplish. So being married definitely helped And um, there were times where I had and that also allowed me to pull back. So I I had to be very more accepting of not having perfect, like be the enemy of the good. Right. So it's like, oh, what you should do is be this kind of student and you should carry this number of hours and all of those things. And I had to let all of that go. And I had to be much more comfortable that this is not going to take me two or three years. It's going to take longer. But it'll allow me to do all the things that were important in my life and that I couldn't necessarily stop or didn't feel like I could because there would be like an opportunity cost to those things. Right. Of like if I stepped out of the workforce, what would that mean at the time that I was doing all of these things? So mindset shift, probably, mm-hmm. and having the privilege to be able to do that because I was in a social structure that made it work.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, very impressive. So I'm curious, you said uh, it was a very important experience for you. Did it change the way sort of your career path or the way you thought about your life and what you wanted to do?
2: I think the thing that drew me to pursue my graduate studies at Roosevelt is the mission. So this is another thing that I talk about. I could have chosen to go to many places, and so I chose to go to Roosevelt. And I chose because of the social justice mission. I don't even think I realized at the time I made the choice how important that was to me. But that was a huge factor. And I think actually now that I'm done and I'm in the world and in the world that I am professionally, it's even more meaningful to be associated with an institution that has that kind of mission, like at this time in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that was probably one of the biggest things that, I don't know if it necessarily changed my trajectory, but it remains a very deep connection.
1: Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So from student to board member, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the journey that uh, led you from that place to the current place?
2: That's a great question. You'll have to ask Ali and others who (laughs) asked me to join the um, Board of Trustees, which is pretty amazing. But during the time between the time that I was a student and the time of joining the the Board of Trustees, which is just recently, my career has been pretty interesting. I mean I, I went from at the time actually shifting from the private sector to the social sector actually. And I had like every experience that you could have in between. I, at the time I was an intern, you know, at a policy advocacy organization. That was where I was when, as I was a graduate student, trying to make the transition um, and to get some skills in order to do the things that I wanted to do. So I've, I've worked um, on the front lines of a direct service organization, helping people with psychiatric disabilities, like get a foothold into the workforce and have independence I have helped to think about and design public policy to do the thing that I did at Roosevelt, which is to help women be able to complete their education and training in ways that suit them. And I've spent now like the lion's share of my time in philanthropy, which is an amazing space to be in. It's uh, You're surrounded by tremendous wealth and resources and people would think that giving away money is an easy thing and it probably should be there's a lot of there's a lot of commentary right now in the sector that it should be that way but the demands that are placed on the sector to be all things to everything compare with what that might look like for the public sector and the private sector more fully that doesn't encompass kind of like this little slice of the private sector. I say philanthropy probably is that, but not in the same way as corporations. The money that we have is nothing compared to those other sectors. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're asked to do these things in these tremendous ways. We should, it's a, it's a privilege the way in which our organizations are set up and how they have come online. So I'm not negating that, But to be thoughtful, right, uh, when we have this fragmented system, just like many other parts of society, sometimes makes it a challenge. So I uh, have learned during that time to really try to be focused on like a lever that I think makes a difference, might make a difference in the world through the time that I've been in philanthropy. So much of that actually has been centered on, whether quietly or these days, a little bit more explicitly in my work at Grand Victoria Foundation, is to think about racial and social justice. These are things that are at the root of every disparity (laughs) that we have across all sectors. And so it feels important to really think about and focus on those things very targeted and very consistently over many, many years those are the things that I've been involved in and learned like over the years between the time I was a student and the time that I've been asked to join the board of trustees. And so now to be asked to join this board at this institution, with this mission aligned with the things that I've been doing over my life is amazing. Like it's amazing kind of having the stars align in that way. So when I was asked, I thought, well, why not? I'm looking for something right now that is, at this stage in my life where I'm going through a lot of you know, personal transformation, it felt like really the right time to bring all of these experiences that I've had and values that I've held together to be on this board.
1: You know, I have to say, I think uh, it's fantastic that you found Roosevelt as a student and now coming back as a board member, clearly uh, the idea of social justice and the importance of it. Has been a central theme of your life, so it really seems like a, a fantastic fit. I can see exactly why they asked you to be on the board.
0: Uh, I don't want to talk to you more about your
1: board time uh, or what you're hoping for the board. But I, I'm curious to hear more about the organization you you currently run, the Grand Victoria Foundation. You just mentioned. Uh, can you tell us a little more about that and and what kind of things uh, it's involved in?
2: Sure. Grand Victoria Foundation is uh, next year will be 25 years old. So that's not old, but it isn't young anymore. So we are pretty established, right? <laughs> Just like it would be if we were talking to my daughter, who was about the same age. Um, but we are a grant-making foundation, a private foundation that was founded about 25 years ago. Our mission is to you know, think about removing barriers to persistent problems that ultimately make Illinois a great place to live and work. Uh, so that means our mission covers the entire state. Uh, we can give away up to about ten or eleven million dollars annually wow. to cover issues throughout the state that are related to the economy, education, environment, and civic engagement, and to support efforts that think about that from a very human centered and equitable perspective meaning how do you think about systems change or policy change from the perspective of those who are most affected? So that's the thing that we talk about all the time. But if we don't actually be very explicit to operate from that perspective, then we can't really get to the things that we're wanting to see. So, you know, our work with fund organizations like in education that think about Educational reform from the perspective of the students and the parents. And so much of what we hear when we think about, you know, the, the public education system is how administrators think about designing the system and how that should be more responsive as opposed to it coming from the other way and those places meeting somewhere in the middle. So our work really looks like that. We have been really, like most people, affected by the events of 2020. And we really, have spent uh, this year, 2021, reflecting on the things that we learned last year about the COVID pandemic and about the racial justice moment that was catalyzed by George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. You know, over the past year, we've definitely have been asked, or I haven't asked the question in many of these kinds of forums, it's just like, what are you going to do differently? You know, because this terrible thing happened, right? These terrible things happened that disproportionately affected people of color. And last year, Black people in particular, when you layer on everything that happened in Minnesota. And I have to say, my response would be, it was from a personal perspective, well, I'm not going to do anything different. I'm going to lean in more to the things that I've cared about, you know, over many, many years, right? And so... I would think that that question almost was absurd, like on the, on its face, I guess, for me. And I've shifted my thought about that more recently, maybe particularly as it relates to the work of the foundation, because I have this wonderful staff team and a wonderful board of directors that's really wanting to um, be very relevant for now and to, to do that over a period of time that will make a difference. So I think the events of last year really made us reflect on how we practice as a foundation and what do we think about when we think about like what emergency response is and why like we have to do that and like how do you sustain some of these things because people they have different kinds of emergencies all the time and we in philanthropy can respond in the in slow ways because we have the privilege of deliberating in these things. So we've shifted some of the ways in which we like are putting the money out on the streets and grants and trying to do some of that faster and like continue that lesson that we learned from the COVID emergency response efforts that we were part of last year. As it relates to racial justice, we're really reorganizing the whole way in which we think about our work. And some of that was a lot of internal reflection about whether or not the things that we did were parts of implicit or unconscious bias where we would not, you know, take the opportunities to fund more Black-led and Black-centered efforts. So we're looking at the way that we set up our applications, our reporting, how we relate and how we do due diligence with these types of organizations that is well documented that people of color-led organizations and Black-led organizations in particular get less money are trusted less right. Get the money. Have shorter relationships with folks in our sector, and so those are all the things that we're hoping to address moving forward and beginning in 2022. So the events of 2020 really actually accelerated a lot of the things that we were thinking about, and kind of helped us get off the off our you know put our walk our talk a little bit more quickly. And I think that that was good. So my mind has shifted in terms of like what that moment meant for our foundation, not just to lean in, but to like get it done and not navel-gaze and not deliberate about it, but to really, as much as we can possible, set a real foundation for doing generational work that is um, about redesigning the structures of the way things happen in the state for people so that things can really be better for everybody.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think being thoughtful about process in that way, the deliberate way you are doing it, is so important in terms of achieving whatever mission you want to. So, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. You guys have been doing that. Uh, I am curious. In the time you've been there, what are some of your favorite projects you funded where you feel like it's really made a difference, or you've kind of loved to see how it played out once you once you gave the the money to the organization?
2: Andy, nobody has ever asked me that question before. <laughs> So, (laughs) and I'm pausing because that's a hard question. What are some of my favorites?
1: You're gonna love some of the stumpers I have coming up, but that's good. I'm glad I am glad I got that's you. That's on one that of there.
2: the gotcha questions.
1: Um
2: yeah, you're not supposed to pick favorites among children, right? Isn't that what that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh we're doing some really interesting things. We have a request in front of us right now. So we we haven't the board hasn't awarded a grant to this organization. It's called soapbox productions so one of the things that we did is we added a new program so we could think about civic engagement and like maybe like how do you think about that not just from the rote perspective of like you know participating in the democratic process of my voting and whatnot but this group that it combines kind of filmmaking and other media platforms with grassroots organizers Um, So they work together to kind of do this, these different narratives Mm. and storytelling that's much more driven by the people who live in the communities that are being examined through the filmmaking. So the process by which they do that seems really interesting and fascinating. And we've been funding, you know, identifying more of these kinds of organizations to fund that have these interesting cultural and civic engagement pieces to them. And I'm finding those to be more interesting. Even a group that's well-established like Illinois Humanities is doing like some super interesting work. And then one of the things that I'm really super passionate about right now, but um, I've been spending a lot of time on is the creation of something that's called the Illinois Black Advocacy Initiative. And it is an effort to actually create a statewide platform that brings together a policy and political agenda that represents the needs and the perspectives of different Black communities throughout Illinois. And that was one of the big lessons that I learned from work that I did last year on the Illinois COVID Response Fund, is that organized advocacy that represents these communities across the state we've learned that 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 doesn't quite exist in the way that people would like sure. and from my perspective being on the steering as on that steering committee you know we have some challenges in terms of figuring out how to get information and positions on black communities so this is something that's new it is really you know could be driven and culturally designed in a way that represents Black culture from the perspectives of Black people so that you get these different narratives and maybe even different ways to think about how to design public policy and to do that in intersectional ways that intersect with the lives of like, you know, people with disabilities or LGBTQ, right? So that you're not just thinking about it in in a monolithic way, but really taking this expression of those who are most affected, those intersections, right? And how do we think about developing an agenda and advocating really powerfully around that in a much different way and at a different scale. So I'm super excited about that. I probably spend too much of my time (laughs) (laughs) connected to that, truth be told. But, um, you know, we're looking to hire somebody for this initiative and it it is very representative of the moment that we find ourselves in. So I think it's pretty cool to kind of do that. But I could go on. Like, you know, I've met over the years. One last thing is I've met a bunch of people who do, who work in the environmental sector or do land conservation. And some of the conversations that I've had with them are super interesting. And it has made us think about this question of where do people fit? (laughs) Like in that conversation with so much of the discourse is about people being the enemy, right? When you think about climate change or any of these other things. And I think I continue to have this thought about like, what is the way in which these things coexist so that we shift this paradigm of like winners and losers, like in that sector. So um, that's probably a place where I've expanded my um, learning the most. I don't know if it's necessarily my favorite, but it definitely has stretched me quite a bit in terms of my knowledge, how to be part of that community, how to challenge that community some, And I'm kind of curious about, like, what our future grant making is going to hold, like, when we think about environmental justice.
1: Based on the Filmmaking Project, I assume you're open to funding a podcaster for, I mean, I don't want to get greedy, but a million dollars or something like that. I'm just going to toss it out there. We can talk later after the podcast.
2: Absolutely, Andy, absolutely.
1: Sharon, you also are involved with a really interesting organization called Willie's Warriors. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that as well?
2: So that's something I just rolled off of that recently, but it is a relatively new leadership development program, which is hosted by Chicago foundation for women. And it was started because of a gift that came from the estate of Reverend Barrow. And the thing that is the coolest probably about that is most people associate Reverend Jesse Jackson with Rainbow PUSH for back in the day operation push right. Mm-hmm. And she was always by his side all the time. And she was a pretty fierce advocate and and she wanted um there to be a legacy and opportunity and platform for other women to be able to lift their voice like be strong advocates. And it's an opportunity to actually shine a light more on her work as as, to shine it on the man, right? And so it has turned into this really wonderful program where there are two cohorts of leaders per year. These women, a lot of their uh, learning and togetherness in these cohorts is self-directed in terms of like, what are the things that they're looking for? But it's intergenerational, so it's not like, you know, just the same kind of folks in terms of how you think about many of these leadership development programs, where there's some homogeneity around the folks who are there, very different backgrounds. It's intentionally economically diverse, intentionally career level diverse. And so uh, the conversations, at least some that I was able to hear, like they're very interesting to think about different paradigms for how for what leadership means right so it's not kind of like it's based on like what your title is or these sorts of things and then to find a place that's very culturally safe for them too to kind of talk about things that it means to be you know women of color leaders is you know I think that's always kind of an interesting and unique space so I think that is, I I got, became part of that. I was asked to do that and decided to do that because it really reflected probably a space that I always wanted (laughs) when I was, (laughs) as I was coming through the ranks and always feeling like the experiences that I was having were just a little bit different, but I couldn't really quite articulate why. So very sacred space, very sacred legacy. And the folks at Chicago Foundation for Women are doing a fabulous job stewarding that.
1: I think that's great. We just had a panel last week about gender equity and a couple of the panelists were talking about the importance of for women of mentoring and sponsoring. And so I think programs like mm-hmm. that are so really valuable.
2: Mm-hmm. But definitely connections to, pe- to do both of those things. And there is a difference between the mentoring and the sponsoring. Right? Yeah, that's
1: what they're talking about. It was really fascinating, actually. And I think it's really valuable in a way to build that consciously to try to overcome some of the kind of the implicit bias in the way the system works typically.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, you are, if I'm correct, a lifelong Chicago resident. Is that correct?
2: Well, you know what? I was born and raised on the west side of Chicago, and I took a hiatus for some years because I did live in Bolingbrook for many years and my raised my children out there for a while, but I always I spent the lion's share of my time in Chicago grew up in Garfield Park on both sides of the park, the west and east side. I'm a CPS kid. Like I grew up going to CPS uh school. So I'm a very proud Lane Tech alum. And also I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign. So I've been I have, you know, with the exception of Roosevelt actually have <laughs> very much come through the public education system, um, even within higher ed.
1: So I'm going to ask you, just to warm you up, I, I want to learn more about your Chicago experience, but I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire Chicago questions. Oh, okay. Are you God. ready? What's your favorite Chicago sports team?
2: The Bulls, probably. I think the okay, bad, okay. and they're like super hot right now.
1: They're on the rise. They're on the <laughs> rise. I'm delighted to see it. Uh, what's your favorite place to go in Chicago.
2: Ooh, that's, that one is kind of easy. One of my most favorite places to go is the Garfield Park Conservatory. Very much a very safe, reflective, sacred space to me.
1: Hmm. And your favorite restaurant in Chicago?
2: I feel a little stumped by that. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because you know what? We're a foodie town, but I don't know that I'm a foodie in that way. (laughs) Um, you you
1: You can give me your favorite Chicago food. Like, is it deep dish? Is it Chicago style hot dog? What's your go to Chicago meal?
2: I don't know, but I will say this. I did have a recent experience. I, I went to a Cubs game toward the end of the season, and there was a woman next to me as I was making my hot dog um, and putting all of the Chicago-style hot dog toppings <laughs> on my hot dog, including that relish that looks like neon green or whatever, and it's delicious on the hot dog. <laughs> yes. so
1: she the
0: color is very eating- yeah. so this woman
2: was from California. She was like, can you tell me more about this? Like, what? Why does it look this way? Why is it that color? And I said, you know, the only thing that I could tell you is it is delicious. Put it on your hot dog. That is what we do here. And you're going to enjoy the hot dog. It will be very, it's going to be very excellent. And she said, okay. She put the relish on her hot dog and we both walked away as we were biting our hot dogs to go back to our seats. So I love, I do love Chicago style hot dogs. I don't know if it's, you know, like one of my face because I don't eat it as much anymore. I'm getting too old to partake in a hot dog once a week or whatever but i love love having a relish and mustard like on those hot dogs um and then i don't know i think um what i enjoy and what i've been enjoying most is like we just get to like choose a whole bunch of different things i just like actually the opportunity that like on any given day in this city i can get anything that i want and not just anything that I want. That it would be actually very good. I could find something that I'm going to be very satisfied by, whether it is a hot dog or a deep dish pizza, or a taco, or some salmon croquettes. You know what? <laughs> Peaches restaurant on the south side.
1: So like, you know, I'm hungry. It's getting to be lunchtime.
2: <laughs> yeah, all of that. <laughs>
1: By the way, my wife's from New York, and she thinks the whole Chicago style hot dog is really weird. Every time she's like, "I don't we wow, tell her we think the pizza thing is
2: weird. Like, what is that about? <laughs> That's that so called pizza that they love to say is really awesome that they fold over. What is that about?"
1: <laughs> all right, couple more for you, and then we'll. And then I want to hear more about your childhood in Chicago. So, what is your favorite Chicago museum?
0: Hmm.
2: That's a great question. Um, the th- the one that comes to my mind, like the easiest, because I feel like I've just had good experiences there, is probably the Museum of Science and
1: Industry. love that place.
2: And it's from something, I don't know if they even still do it anymore, but, you know, back in the day, they would have Christmas around the world and you would go mm-hmm. and see all those trees. I love museums. But I'm actually surprised that that's the one that popped into my mind immediately. But I think that's because I associate that with a very much also just a really lovely experience that I had over and over again. And like I could still do that and took my kids when they were little.
1: Yeah, we do, too. And I have to say, it's such it's has such an enormous collection. I feel like every time we go, we stumble across something Something, new. that I had no idea was there.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, that place doesn't feel static. That's a good point.
1: Who is your favorite Chicagoan? Andy, what from the, I, it could be from the past as well. It doesn't have to be from today.
2: I don't know. You know, I grew up in the era of, you know, the council wars with city council. So I've always been a person who like followed city politics, but I, I do remember what it felt like when Harold Washington was mm. elected. I mean, that was an amazing, and I, you know, I got to be in Grant Park when president Obama was elected the first time. But I was a high schooler when Mayor Washington was elected, and I remember what it felt like when he was elected, and I remember what it felt like when he died. And I think he just was a very profoundly inspirational leader for Chicagoans, period, because of all of what he represented um, and the hope for changing the way that we think about the political system in this city and we still have a long way to go to kind mm-hmm. of shift things from the ways in which he aspired to do. So I think he would be one of my faves.
1: Yeah, I like that pick a lot. So that leads me to my next question. So uh, Chicago, it's racial history. There are some great things, right? The mayor Harold Washington, his election and what that meant for the city and some moments that are not so great, right? The the campaign that Martin Luther King did in Chicago and what happened with that and the white backlash So I'm curious, uh, as an African-American woman growing up in Chicago, what was that like uh, for you?
2: You know, some of it is very painful. Just as the election of Harold Washington was a great joy, like it also came with a lot of other things. And at the time, my brothers and I were being bused to a school um, on the northwest side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just didn't mix. We didn't cross boundaries. And that was one of the first times where we were, you know, coming out of our neighborhood um, in that way to spend dedicated time like in a predominantly white space. We were bused to this elementary school because we were part of a gifted program. And the school actually was segregated by kind of uh class in a little bit where it's like there was this gifted program and it was what called the regular program and then there was something called the basic skills program and very much different students you could see the racial difference of the students in these different programs so we were just one of a few black students that were part of this gifted program we would come to school and we would wear these you know hair washing and buttons on our jacket because you know that's what everybody in the neighborhood was doing so you know you don't think about it until people tease you about that, right? And at the time, that election was very racialized. Yeah. So his opponent was Bernie Upton. People, people remember that. And there was a lot of like racial pride, like on both sides of that election. And I mean, I think I was only ten or eleven at the time, and I can remember this very vividly. But my brothers would get into fights on the playground about like wearing the button. So, I mean, that's a painful experience when people show you that you are a Black person, right? You don't think about that so much. You grow up a certain way, but how you become racialized is when white people tell you what you are and try to put you in this place. I've had that experience, and and a lot of that I've actually experienced through the educational systems because of the places where I've been. So that was one. You know, similarly at Lane Tech, which is a huge school, and then you're in these honors classes and whatnot. So it's tracked, like, you know, it's supposed to be tracked by your ability, but there are these racialized components that come with it because you're always like part of the small place. So I've always kind of felt that, like within my educational experiences in Chicago. And then, um, so I think those are places probably where it's more painful. And some of that, you know, extended into my like career. It's a little bit different now, like we're in a different time. But even today, it's still as much as we could talk about race now, at least in, in my sector, right? You know, what we just experienced, whether it's, you know, in Chicago or now with January 6th, is like, you know, what year are we in? Yeah, Why are we still having these conversations? Why am I having to have this these discussions with my twenty <laughs> my twenty year old children, right? So this place is like a place that you love and you have to love all of the parts of it, even if it's those that help shape like who you become. And some of that shapes kind of the activism that's part of this the this, this city that's wonderful. It also shapes like the way politics and policy gets done. And I think one of the things I don't enjoy, like as I've come back is, um, and this is not a racial component, but um, it's a result of like the way politics happens. I think is like, you know, all of the ways in which we're taxed more (laughs) here um, and why we can't figure out how to kind of root out some of these things that are corrupt, but they also have racialized roots. So I wish we could get rid of some of
1: that. Do you feel like progress has been made? Do you feel like looking back what it was like when you're younger versus now that, that things are better? And do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about things going forward?
2: So I'm an optimist. I can't be in a job that I have without being hopeful. So for sure, you know, <laughs> I could be cynical, but like I, I am an optimist. And I think that like your question actually is simple, but the answer is really complex. And I say that because there's progress. We could say things out loud now and the response is still different and the people who care about them, they feel different, but that's based on kind of media images and the things that we see, Right. But I will say I can go um, and I have driven by um, parts of where I used to live. And so if anybody who's from the West Side, they knew that um, Madison Street as a corridor was like an economic engine of the West Side. And I can remember, you know, people would go to the store on the corner of Madison and Pulaski called Three Sisters to like, you know, get their dresses and like all these things. And if you go to that corner today, I mean there's just a story that came on Block Club Chicago that talked about the Aldi being shut down and the, the folks not getting notice about like the grocery store that they rely on to be shut down. It is a very different corner <clears throat> than how I grew up. That makes me sad, right? Because it, it is a it is it feels like a representation of the deterioration of black economic power. That doesn't make me feel hopeful when I can physically Mm -hmm. see that, even though these conversations that are had in these other privileged places feel different. So Mm -hmm. that's a big, huge dissonance.
1: Yeah. So a mixed bag. Some improvements, some deterioration. I'm hopeful.
2: I'm hopeful. Conversations are being had. Money is flowing we're about to see what's going to come down from both the the end of the relief funds from the feds, as well as now that the infrastructure bill is passed, like what things will be happening. I'm encouraged by more multicultural kind of coalitions around who should care about like a street, a corner like that or that corridor. Right. I'm encouraged by that, those things for sure. I also know that the time it takes in order for that to come back to what it was, you know, 30, 35 years ago, it will take another decade. Right. In Mm -hmm. order for people who live there to see that be vibrant and relevant in the ways that people deserve. Like those are their homes. This is where people live. This is where generations of people live. People that I grew up with are still there, and they're very proud to be there. So I think a lot of times, like, we have this notion that people who live in particular places, what they want to see is, like, that they don't want to be there, so, like, they want to go somewhere else, right? And we don't, you know, just respect that people's homes are wherever they lay their hats, and, like, that is, they deserve for wherever that is that they are to not have to go somewhere else, and that places should be great places for people to live and work like wherever they are, right?
1: So now you'll be on the board and you will in some ways be looking at these sort of issues through the lens of higher education. What do you hope to accomplish on the board? What role do you see Roosevelt playing in the larger Chicago community and, and by extension higher education potentially playing in some of these issues?
2: Yeah, maybe I'll take the second question first, which is what role the institution can play in Chicago. I mean, one of the things that I would like to do is just really be an ambassador for the mission of this institution. It is very unique within the higher education system in Chicago and probably across the country. So there is an amazing story to be told around like the legacy and the history of how like this institution, why it exists. And I think to think about that, in the context of the history of Chicago, all of these things that we just discussed, to continue to build on that and to continue for us to assert <laughs> that mission, because the alums that come from Roosevelt are in very interesting and influential places, we can continue to produce that and speak really, really loudly and proudly about that. And to assert the mission in the places where we are, whether that's in the corporate sector, the social sector, the educational sector. We have all of that, that those resources and levers that we can pull in our alumni network and in the people that we're producing through the institution now. So I I, I see that. I think what role do I want to play on the board? So, yes, I want to kind of like tell everybody that because I am a product of that. So I think I've done well as a student. I think I've done well in my career. And, you know, I'm just at a place where, you know, I I feel very strongly about using my voice. And I can. I know that I can do that. But really, I I do want to learn. I mean, already, I've only, you know, I got elected in June. (laughs) And I attended my first board meeting in September, and the issues that come before the board—they're, you know—they're very complex, and they always have to be thought about from the perspective of the impact on the students, right? Um, first, and so, you know, there are tough decisions that have to be made, like in the climate that we're in now, right? Where what we see in people's uh, investment portfolios are huge gains. <laughs> Right. So, you know, that's a system that's producing more and more wealth. But what we see in terms of like individuals lives and and the lives of like families who are trying to get their kids through, you know, our institution is not the same. Right. So. What does that do for resources? What do What does it do when we don't want to pay taxes? And like, what is the implications of that? Like, on an everyday student, <clears throat> on a macro issue like that, there are everyday implications for the people who walk through our institutions, and we have to make decisions based on that, right? So, I am just learning kind of the complexity of like what those things are that are in front of us, and having been a student myself, like bringing that perspective about how these things should be connected.
1: Well, Sharon, I have to say, I think it's going to be fantastic to have your voice on the board. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and letting the Roosevelt community get to know you a little bit better.
2: Thanks. I look forward to getting to know them better in a different way. So um, thanks for having me. It was fun. And I'll think more about these Chicago rapid fire questions. Andy. I know, but
1: I'll hit you with a couple of gotcha questions when we do this. <laughs>
2: <together>. <laughs> thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Uh, if you want to listen to any other podcast from the And Justice For All series, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcast. Thanks again, Sharon.
0: Thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.